One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the History of England, episode 27, Hateful to His People and Odious to God. The history of Anglo-Saxon England saw a pretty close relationship between the church and state. Even when things needed to change, as with Dunstan's reform in the 10th century, the changes were done through the leadership of the king. And this partnership carried on with William I, a pious conqueror who'd found in Lanfranc a close, talented and willing partner. William Rufus had also been close to Lanfranc, and had been under his tutelage throughout his youth. Lanfranc, on the conqueror's instructions, had supported and enabled Rufus's claim to the throne in 1087. But in 1089, Lanfranc died, and with his death, a moderating influence was taken away from Rufus. It's difficult to overemphasise just how important the Archbishop of Canterbury was to the medieval Englishman. It was not just a matter of the operation of the church, though that was, of course, a major part of his role. But he was also the spiritual leader of a nation for whom religion was deeply interwoven with daily life. So the fact that Rufus did not immediately move to replace Lanfranc was massively more scandalous than it would be today, and of course even these days, eyebrows would move skyward if there was any substantial delay. Rufus quite liked not having the primate there to lecture him, and while the position was vacant, he also got all of the lovely revenues of Canterbury. Four years later there was still no archbishop appointed. When William fell ill, and probably thought he was going to die in 1093. He went into a right old panic, and was suddenly all contrition and repentance. He issued a written charter of repentance. He promised to release prisoners, forgive old debts, restore good old laws, and not tax the churches that he'd been doing up to now. And he rushed to find an Archbishop of Canterbury. The status of most of these promises are pretty much the same as my own New Year's resolutions, i.e. pretty quickly forgotten, but he did choose a new Archbishop. The man selected was one Anselm of Beck, the abbot of the same house Lanfranc had come from himself. He really, really didn't want the job. The English bishops were dead keen. Anselm was a famous scholar and theologian. William was on his deathbed. He knew his bishops were keen, so he was keen. But Anselm knew himself. He loved scholarship and the seclusion of the monastery. Hate it or loathe it, the archbishop was a major political office and Anselm knew it wasn't his cup of mead. But in the end, William was desperate, and in a wild bedside scene, William thrust the pastoral staff into Anselm's hand and shoved the ring onto his finger, and the deed was done. In fact, Anselm was right. Both William and Anselm probably tried to get on, but were two wildly different people. Even the attributes they shared, such as outspokenness, courage and tenacity, were to get them into trouble, and we're moving into a time of European-wide church reform and conflict that demanded diplomacy that neither of them had. So William and Anselm were to suffer from a series of disputes, large and small. You get the very strong impression of an over-demanding king facing a stubborn archbishop trying to reconcile his religious and temporal duties. The first problem came straight away, when Anselm perfectly reasonably asked to be able to go to Rome to get his pallium from the Pope. The pallium, incidentally, was a woollen cloak, 
and it had become the symbol of the fact that a bishop received his spiritual powers from the Pope. But actually Anselm's request drove William into a fury. The problem was that the Pope Anselm had recognised was Urban. At the moment there were two Popes. There were two Popes because the Holy Roman Emperor had managed to get an anti-Pope elected while he carried on his dispute with Urban. Now William rather liked this situation since it meant he didn't need to recognise either and that gave him lots of freedom to do what he wanted to do. Sir Anselm's calm request had consequences. William would need to recognise someone. What made it worse was that William and Anselm already had suffered a couple of minor clashes. William had asked Anselm for a donation to his walls, for example, and Anselm had offered a paltry 500 quid, which William turned down as being way too small. But Anselm stuck to his guns and remarked he'd given all the rest to the poor. So William was disposed to be grumpy. It's pretty clear also that the personal relationship between the two wasn't great. Or anyway, see what you think this quote from Rufus says to you about the relationship. Yesterday I hated him with great hatred. Today I hate him with yet greater hatred. And he can be certain that tomorrow and thereafter I will hate him continually with ever fiercer and more bitter hatred. I think that's clear enough. Rufus called a court to discuss the issue. Options on the table were to depose Anselm completely or get Anselm to renounce Urban. William tried the latter with all his might, but the irresistible force had met the immovable object. Interestingly enough, the English bishops were quite willing to go along with a plan to dump Anselm and generally supported the king. Anselm actually drew most of his sympathy from the lay nobility. There's a theme here of conflict between English customary practices which are supported by the local ecclesiastical leaders and the king, and which support a traditional leading role from the king in church affairs, and with the Pope and church reformers' desire to develop greater independence from the state for the church. It's a conflict that will rumble on, that will resurface in Henry I's reign, and resurface in spades with Henry II and Thomas Becket. On this occasion, William went into a secret correspondence with Urban and the long and short was that a legate came to give Anselm his pallium on the Pope's behalf, while Anselm was forced to accept English customary practices. They got on fine for another year, and then the niggling started again. Eventually, after William told Anselm that the troops he'd provided from Canterbury were rubbish, Anselm had had enough. He'd been unable to control his bishops, the King's court was far too much fun for his comfort, and he'd been faced by a consistent refusal by William to support his church reforms. So he asked the king if he could go and ask the Pope for his advice, which again exasperated William. He basically refused and was backed up by another council. But Anselm went anyway. It's very likely that both Anselm and William thought Urban would effectively see this as a resignation, and then William would get to choose someone more pliable. But in fact, Urban did no such thing, and even threatened William with excommunication. So we're left with a rather extraordinary situation with the head of the English church in exile from 1097. But William himself was happy enough. He simply ignored the threat of excommunication. He knew Urban had too many problems to have a real go at him. And since Anselm was in exile, he could take the revenue from his lands again. By this stage, poor old Anselm felt pretty desperate about the whole situation. There's a rather lovely letter that has survived from 1099 from Anselm to Pope Pascal, Urban's successor which explains pretty clearly how he felt. And here are a few extracts. I saw in England many ills which I could not correct, although it was my duty to do so. The king commanded my assent to his wishes, which were contrary to the law and the will of God. 
He refused to allow a papal legate to be received in England. He has not permitted a council to be held in his kingdom for 13 years. He gives church land to his men. No one, not even my bishops, will give me counsel without the king's permission. All of this makes it clear just how frustrated the poor man was. Clearly he's considered excommunicating the king, and he says he's not done so because in Anton's words, the king would think little of it and treat it with derision. For the Middle Ages, this is strong stuff indeed, in a deeply religious and superstitious age. And then in the letter, there's a heartfelt plea from Anselm. I implore you not to order me to return to England. This is a man that has been driven to the end of his tether by a domineering king, and who does not have the strength of will or political abilities to get his way or reach an acceptable compromise. So Anselm set in exile, and he got more and more involved with the more radical church reforms on the continent. It would be Henry, though, that would have to deal with the fallout from that when he became king. We talked last week about Rufus's overwhelming desire to get control of Normandy. The main thing that distracted him from this aim was not his troubles with Anselm, but trouble with the English borders, and he had to devote a lot of time to both. The borderlands between England and Scotland and England and Wales were very different. So when you crossed from England into Wales, you crossed into a markedly different country, ethnically and linguistically, which meant that the powerful marcher lords of Wales tended to look for support from the English king as they sought to encroach on Welsh lands or defend themselves from attack. The Scottish borders were very different. The key counties we know today of Lothian, Northumbria and Cumbria have moved between the Scottish and English kings for centuries. They were inhabited by very similar people with similar languages. And in fact, there was a bigger difference between the inhabitants of Lothian and the Gaelic peoples of Scotland than there were with the Northumbrians. The borders between England and Scotland weren't finally settled until 1237, and there's an area called the Debatable Land in the western borders still causing trouble in the 16th century. But in practice, by the end of Rufus's reign, we're pretty much there. Malcolm Canmore had sworn allegiance to the Conqueror and had transferred that allegiance to Robert Curtos as William's eldest son. And in 1091, he felt this gave him a shot at getting a bit more territory. The border was at this point probably on the Tweed, and it's possible that Malcolm fancied moving it down to the Tees. For those of you not perfectly acquainted with all the rivers of England, I put a map on the website. Robert Curtos in 1080 had built a new castle on the Tyne, and in a fit of clever thinking called it Newcastle. In 1091, Malcolm raided south and laid siege to it, which probably indicated that he had plans to stay, rather than just doing a bit of raiding. As a good family man, Malcolm also had other reasons for raiding. So please give a big welcome back to Edgar Atheling, who re-enters our story. The last time we'd heard about him, he'd set off for Apulia with 200 knights. He'd then supported Robert in his spat with Rufus, and as a result Rufus deprived Edgar of his lands, and Edgar fled north to Margaret his sister and Malcolm his brother-in-law. We don't know exactly what happened in Apulia, but we can probably guess, given that he's back, that it didn't go brilliantly well. It's also quite possible, incidentally, that Malcolm at this stage controlled Cumbria in the west. Either way, it was probably not under direct English rule, being ruled by Dolphin, the son of the old Earl of Northumbria, Gospatric. So look, lots of old friends coming back into the story. In response to Malcolm's raid, William gathered a fleet and an army and set off north. The fleet fared pretty badly, hit by the autumn storms, and most of it was lost. But Malcolm withdrew before William's land army, and at this point Edgar acted as the peacemaker, and the two kings came to an agreement. Malcolm did homage to William and was confirmed in possession of his English lands, 
These English lands were parcels of land that he held as a normal feudal lord to help him when he came down to visit the King of England. It's also possible that a marriage between Rufus and Malcolm's daughter Edith was agreed. William seems to have simply failed to abide by the agreement or taken a liberal view of its spirit. Because the very next year we see him in Cumbria. He expelled Dolphin and built a castle at Carlisle. He was determined to make sure Cumbria became a firm part of England. So he also settled English presence on the land, just to make the point. Malcolm complained about this and in August 1093 he came south to discuss matters with William, only to return in fury when he found William very unwilling to negotiate. William instead insisted on an English court to settle the dispute, and Malcolm was very unkeen to do this. It seemed to him that such a thing would indicate that he was just another vassal, and in his mind any court should be populated by both English and Scottish lords, which seems like a reasonable enough request. So Malcolm took up arms again and raided into England. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Until Rufus could come north, he was opposed by Robert Mowbray, the Earl of Northumbria. Robert didn't have enough men to meet Malcolm in open battle, and he relied on his castles to slow Malcolm down until help could arrive from the south. Malcolm seems to have bypassed Bamborough and headed instead straight for the castle at Annick, which he besieged, believing Robert to be miles away. Robert seized his opportunity and unexpectedly attacked. In the fighting, Morella Bamborough, Robert's steward, killed Malcolm, and the Scottish heir Edward was also killed. The Scots retreated in confusion, and the Scottish Queen Margaret died when she heard the terrible news. The next four years were years of civil war in Scotland, which took until 1097 to be resolved. There was something of a Celtic reaction, and Donald Bain, Malcolm's brother, was made king. And Malcolm's sons, Duncan, Edgar, David and Alexander, took refuge with Rufus. In 1097, Edgar Atheling undertook one of the few successful campaigns of his life, and the dynasty was re-established. All this meant that Rufus had a weak Scotland on his borders, which of course suited him right down to the ground. The last time we spoke about Wales, it was to talk about the Marcher Lords, mini-kings that William the Conqueror had established along the Welsh borders. All these lords tried to take territory from the Welsh, with varying success. In the south and central marshes, nothing had really changed very much by the time Rufus came to the throne. But in the north, Hugh d'Avrange, sometimes called Hugh the Fat, and his lieutenant, Robert of Rudland, had made a lot of progress along the northern coast, establishing a castle at Rudland. By 1073, Robert of Rudlan had come into conflict with a great opponent of the English, Griffith ad Kynan. Griffith was born in Ireland in 1055, and was constantly able to use Ireland as a base and a refuge throughout a long life fighting the English. He became King of Gwyneth in northeastern Wales no less than four times, but eventually died in his bed while his sons retook territory that had been lost to the Normans for some time. But his early days were hard work. His first reign came at the expense of another Welsh lord, Traherne, and with the help of Robert of Rudland. Robert had essentially been held up in his conquest by Traherne and saw the chance to do a bit of dividing and ruling by supporting Griffith. But Traherne proved tougher than either and regained his kingdom. Griffith was back in 1081, this time with the support of Rhys ap Tudor, the king of Dehubarth, which is further south from Gwyneth. By the way, if your knowledge of Welsh geography isn't great, let me recommend the map on the website 
at historyofengland.typepad.com. Anyway, together Griffith and Rhys marched north into Gwyneth, defeated Traherne, and so Griffith was back for time number two. Now obviously this is great news for Griffith, but at the same time it does rather illustrate one of the features of the history of medieval Wales, which is the lack of unity between the different kingdoms in the face of Norman aggression. That lack of political unity was partly fuelled by a different approach to inheritance. By and large, the Norman habit was for one child to inherit the whole shooting match, and any other children would just need to set out and seek their fortune on their own. The Welsh tradition recognised that all sons had rights, even if they were illegitimate. This led to land being partitioned and to endless inheritance disputes. In 50 years of the 12th century, for example, seven members of the Powys royal family were killed, blinded or castrated by other members of the dynasty. All this meant that it took a leader of quite exceptional ability to pull the Welsh together and present a united face to the aggressors. And this time around, Griffith's celebrations were again short-lived. Hugh of Chester and Robert of Rudland invited him for an all-expenses-paid Johnny in Chester, and then when he arrived, they threw him into prison. It's hotly disputed just how long he was there, but I'm going to go for 12 years. But anyway, the moral is never trust a Norman. While Griffith rotted in Chester... Robert of Rudland extended his conquests in Gwynedd all the way to Bangor and Anglesey by 1093. Southern and Central Wales by this time was pretty much going the same way. In Central Wales, Bernard of Nerfmarche took over Brickeniog, killing Rhys ap Tudor in 1093. A little further north, Roger of Montgomery conquered all the land in Central Wales to the sea and occupied Ceredigion. He founded Cardigan on the coast, then pushed on south, occupying large parts of Dehubarth and building a castle at Prembrook. And slightly south from him was a new Norman family who had arrived on the scene and conquered Radnor in the form of Philip de Bruse. All in all, the Welsh looked in pretty bad shape. Most of the lowland was occupied by marcher lords, and independent Wales consisted of a few pockets of land, mainly in the highland. And by and large, the Normans' interest at this point was simply that, take over the profitable lowland areas, and extract some money in the form of tribute from other areas. And then in 1094, a chronicle notes. In this year, the Britons, being unable to bear the tyranny and injustice of the French, threw off the rule of the French, and they destroyed their castles in Gwyneth and inflicted slaughter upon them. The timing of this revolt was pretty good. It's probably around this time that Griffith had escaped from Chester, according to the legend carried to safety fetters and all by a chap called Kinrig the Tall. Meanwhile, the Normans were in what you might call a bit of a leadership crisis. Robert of Rudland had lost his head in 1093, quite literally. Some Welsh raiders, possibly our friend Griffith, landed on the coast and raided the coastal villages. Robert and a fury charged down to attack them all on his own, which is a pretty normal thing to do. His head ended up on a spike on the Welsh ships as they pulled away from the coast. And in July 1093, Roger of Montgomery had also died, and Rufus was abroad in Normandy. The leaders of the Welsh revolt were Griffith, and Cadogan at Blethyn of Powys. The revolt swept over all the new castles the Normans had built except Pembroke. The Welsh won a great battle in Gwynedd and recaptured most of Dehubarth, Ceredigion, Anglesey and the north. All of this stirred Rufus into action, and in 1094 he marched into Wales at the head of an army. But the Welsh simply avoided battle. Rufus's advance along the northern coast was slow and ponderous, and basically he achieved nothing. Over the next two years, the Welsh continued to make gains in central Wales, so Rufus returned, but again probably achieved pretty little with his invasion into South Wales in 1097. 
It was Hugh of Chester rather than Rufus who turned the tide, invading Gwyneth in 1098 and forcing the Welsh leaders to flee to Ireland. But Gwyneth remained in revolt and continued to fight back. This meant that by 1099 both sides had fought each other to a standstill and wanted to come to some kind of accommodation. So Gruffith was confirmed as the King of Gwyneth, Cadogan was confirmed as the Lord of Ceredigion and Powys, and in the south the situation favoured the Normans much more, with most of South Wales in Norman hands. The 1094 revolt in Wales was an important setback for the Normans. Up until then it looked like a pretty steady takeover. The success of the revolt established Gwyneth in particular as the centre of Welsh independence for the next 200 years. It also rather confirms Rufus's status as a kind of OK on the military front, but not much more than that. After all, he hadn't actually lost, but then he'd not actually won anything either. But in 1099, Rufus was probably feeling OK about life in general. His irritating Archbishop of Canterbury was in exile, and despite a few papal threats, that was better than him bleating at court about the number of parties going on. Normandy was practically his, Maine was under his control, South Wales at least was coming under control, and Scotland seemed settled. His mate, Ranulph Flambar, had built him a magnificent Westminster Hall, and Rufus had rewarded him by making him the Bishop of Durham. So it was time for a hoolie, in the mode of the Conqueror's crown wearing. He held a great coronation feast, he had the King of Scots there to hold his sword of state, and basically had the chance to do a bit of wallowing in pomp and glory. Sadly for him, he didn't have long to enjoy it. He took himself off to the New Forest for the hunting that was his favourite pastime. While there, he heard about a revolt in Maine, and he rushed off to the coast and forced the master of a small boat to take him across the channel in the middle of a raging storm with just a few companions. They all tried to stop him, but William was up for it and brushed them off with the remark that he'd never heard of a king drowning. He reached France, jumped onto a priest's nag at Touquet, relieved Le Mans, and did a bit of harrying to teach them not to do it again, and was back in London by the end of September. Yahoy! By August 1100, William and his little brother Henry would have been worrying slightly about the impending return of Robert to Normandy with his new rich and royal Sicilian wife. So what better way of relaxing than heading off to the New Forest again for a bit more hunting? The New Forest was not in fact a particularly lucky place for the Normans, given that Rufus's older brother Richard had died in a hunting accident there in 1081. But in 1100, Henry and William were there hunting stag as normal. The incident that followed is well known, and has given rise to a lot of speculation. On the night before he went hunting, Rufus is said to have had a dream, when the devil spoke to him and said, I can't wait for tomorrow because we can finally meet in person. I guess this would qualify as slightly worrying, but I don't suppose there was much to be done. The following morning, the party started as normal by checking out their kit. Rufus made sure that one of the knights with him, a chap called Walter Tyrrell, had the very sharpest of arrows, saying, It's only right that the sharpest be given to the man who knows how to shoot the deadliest shots. He should probably actually have given Walter the ones with the little rubber tips on. During the hunt, Walter shot at a stag and hit the king instead. The arrow hit him in the chest. William broke off the shaft but fell forward off his horse, driving the arrow deep into his lung. While he lay there speechless and dying, Walter panicked and legged it. He seems to have holed up in France, but to be honest, no one seems to have tried very hard to pursue him, and in fact, there might have been plenty around looking to give him an award if he'd asked. Henry displayed all the compassion and tenderness for which the Normans are rightly known. Leaving his brother lying there, choking his last, he legged it to the treasury at Winchester. That was the way he became king in those days. 1. Seize the treasury at Winchester. 2. Get yourself crowned. Henry wanted to move super fast, before word got to Robert, 
who would most likely be seen as the obvious successor rather than him. And so it was left to a bloke called Perkis to pick up the body, sling it on a cart and take it into Winchester to be buried. There have, of course, been lots of conspiracy theories, mainly that Henry organised the death of his brother. There can be absolutely no doubt that Henry was perfectly capable of such a thing. And yes, it is a bit odd that Walter, known as a fine shot, should have been responsible for shooting William. But look, it's clearly all tripe, as conspiracy theories almost always are. None of the contemporary chroniclers even hint at such a thing, and you could bet they would have loved to do so. Hunting accidents were common. It was just one of those things. So what do we think of William, then? It seems to me that he's straight out of the Norman mould. The church chroniclers are clearly going way overboard with all this spawn of the devil stuff and reflecting as much their own concerns as anything. He's got a bit of flamboyance with his long hairs, pointy shoes, lots of parties at court and all the holy face of Lucas stuff. He's almost certainly not the worst king to sit on the throne of England from a moral or any other sense. But basically he was a Norman. He was brutal and concerned with one thing only, his personal power. Everything he did was bent towards simply maintaining his kingdom, expanding it and making sure he stayed in control. There's nothing higher to celebrate about Rufus's reign, no higher achievement or purpose, nothing outstanding to cheer about. So he was okay, I suppose. But it's proving a bit difficult to like these Normans. Let's see what Henry has to offer next time. Because Henry will have to wait until next time, so we'll leave him galloping off over the dirty roads to Winchester and we'll catch up with him next time. So that just leaves it to me to thank you all again for listening. Please do keep the comments and questions coming. I've really enjoyed that. And I'm always up for a few historical challenges. And hopefully you'll join me next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.